Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Hope things in your world are going okay. Unfortunately, uh, working in the hospital, I, I'd love to say that things are getting better with uh, the COVID crisis, but unfortunately they're not and they're getting worse. Um, I hope that isn't the case where you're at and I hope uh, you're, uh, all the listeners are staying uh, safe and, and healthy as they can be. So uh, for the new listeners, welcome. I uh, hope uh, that you find that the Game Changers is, is a podcast you're going to want to listen to a lot. We try to give you the latest pharmacotherapy information and uh, try and do it in a very compact sort of way so that you can get all the information you need on a quick drive to and from work. Today, uh, no COVID stuff again. Yay. Uh, We're actually going to talk about a study that is literally hot off the press. Uh, It was just released a couple of days ago uh, of this recording in The Lancet, and it was the Quartet study and a fascinating study looking at multiple small doses of antihypertensives in the treatment of someone with a new diagnosis of hypertension, basically, as opposed to just regular monotherapy. And when I'm talking small doses, uh, when we get to the doses they were using, you're going to go, wow, that's we're approaching, you know, homeopathic levels of dosing here. So it is it is quite interesting. So uh, again, it's a fascinating study uh, out of Australia. And I thought it would, it would be definitely worth sharing uh, with the listeners, even though we don't have these teeny tiny doses, I think it does really speak a lot to I think a question that a lot of pharmacists and a lot of providers have, which is, you know, again, how do we approach t- treating hypertension in patients, which is, you know, something that we've really struggled to answer, you know, really even before the all hat study in 2004, you know, which was really kind of one of the first big landmark studies on how to treat hypertension, we still struggle to do that. And, and that's a problem, because of course, hypertension is still one of the leading causes of disease burden globally, even though it's a disease that again, almost never has symptoms, people often forget that it is still a leading cause of stroke, it's a leading cause of coronaries, it's a leading cause of kidney failure and all sorts of things like that. More concerning is the fact that studies are pretty clear that even in countries where blood pressure lowering medications are available and affordable, most patients who have hypertension are never treated to whatever the local goal is or what the organizational goal of blood pressure is. And that's not new information. The NHANES studies, the gigantic uh, ambulatory care uh, surveys that are done every four or five years to look at a wide variety of outpatient diseases, one of the things they track is, you know, uh, patients who have hypertension. And they look at patients who, who have hypertension, who know personally that they have high blood pressure. And then they look at patients who are at goal. And in the last NHANES study suggested about 40% of patients with hypertension were not at their goal blood pressure. So we know that this is a real problem. And of course, the big reasons leading to that is something called clinical inertia. And this is something that's probably been studied more in hypertension than almost any other disease, because again, hypertension doesn't tend to have symptoms. And so I have observed this over the years, my guess is, is many of the listeners have as well, where somebody gets the diagnosis of high blood pressure, they're started on monotherapy, and then that's it. We never really titrate up, titrate down, adjust medications for side effects. We just say, well, you know, they're on a 
an antihypertensive, I'm treating their hypertension, but they're not a goal. And again, it's not negligence or anything. I think it's sincere desire to minimize adverse drug reactions, to minimize pill burden, to minimize cost and things along those lines. But the bottom line is it results in persistent monotherapy for most patients with hypertension. And that leads to that 40% of patients who are not at goal. So, you know, that's, I think, one of the impetuses of this quartet study. The other impetus is something that other studies have suggested. And there's been a number of other studies that have been published, smaller studies over the last 25 years that have suggested that low doses of multiple agents up front, instead of just starting with monotherapy, may actually be more effective than monotherapy at rapidly getting patients to goal. And that makes sense when we think about the pharmacology of antihypertensives. Almost all antihypertensives have a flat dose response curve. And so really, once you get to the low middle dose part of the range, for example, you know, 25 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide, that's about as much antihypertensive effect as you're going to get. And doses above that are just going to give you side effects. You're really going to get very little extra blood pressure control. I always see how someone's blood pressure is 180 and they're on lisinopril 20 and we go to lisinopril 40. And I'm like, I can pretty much bet you that's not going to get them to goal because you've got most of the bang for the buck for ACE inhibitors you're going to get at the low to middle dose range. So again, it stands to reason that if we use low doses of multiple agents, we may be able to dodge a lot of the weirdo side effects at the regular doses, but kind of use them to their antihypertensive effect because they're in this low range, basically. Previous studies, again, have kind of looked at this. There was a systematic review and meta-analysis that looked at quarter-dose blood pressure-lowering therapy. It was published in 2017. And again, it found that basically using combinations of drugs at the quarter dose that you would start them on seemed to result in better blood pressure control compared to standard dose therapy. But again, these were all small studies they looked at. So that brings us to this paper that was published this week in The Lancet called, uh, again, the Quartet Study, the Quadruple Ultra-Low Treatment for Hypertension. So interesting. And it was a pragmatic study done in Australia, a multi-center parallel group, active control, double-blind, randomized, controlled, phase three (laughs) trial of patients with high blood pressure, say all that fast three times. And the primary outcome assessment was blood pressure control at 12 weeks, but they had a a subgroup where they wanted to follow these patients out to 12 months to look at at long-term efficacy and safety. This was done in 10 primary care centers and hospital outpatient clinics in uh, throughout Australia, basically. So how was the study done? It, uh, the inclusion criteria for the study, uh, they were adults who were potentially available if, if they were either currently untreated for high blood pressure or they were just receiving monotherapy. And they did look at, at blood pressure eligibility criteria. For example, they looked at standard observed clinic systolic blood pressures between 140 and 179. So if they came in, they were on monotherapy and, there's, they, came, and they had their blood pressure checked in the clinic and their systolic was between 140 and 179, or their diastolic was between 90 and 109, or both, they could be considered a candidate for the study. One of the big pluses of this trial is they did do a lot of 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And we now have pretty good studies that suggest that that's almost certainly the better way to go in trying to figure out if people truly have high blood pressure. We know that white coat hypertension is actually far more common than we previously thought it was. And in several studies have suggested that much more, I think, concerning or, or sobering is the fact that studies have also seen that we don't do blood pressure measurements correctly in the clinic. We don't use the right cuffs on obese patients. We don't utilize the cuffs properly. We use automated cuffs that have never been calibrated in months and months and months and and all that sort of stuff. And again, the community pharmacist listening to me, I'm sure if you've ever worked in a community pharmacy that had one of those automated blood pressure seating things and, you know, most 
pharmacists probably just smack themselves in the head when someone comes in and says, my blood pressure over there says it's 300 over 150. What should I do? And you just want to kind of, you know, bang your head against the box. You're like, dude, I'm not really sure I would really count that as, as, as a real blood pressure measurement. Why don't you come on over here and I'll do it, you know, do a real one because I don't know when the last time anyone's even taken a look at that machine. So, you know, for all those reasons, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring in the latest guidelines from the American Heart Association were actually recommended way over just uh, utilizing that one-time clinic assessment of somebody's blood pressure. So in this study, they did do quite a bit of ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, both for inclusion and then actually when people were in the study. If they had a daytime average 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure of 135 more or a diastolic of 85 more or both in the last 12 weeks, and a couple of other uh, uh, categories, whether they looked at combinations of ambulatory and clinic blood pressure measurements, any and all of those together would have the patient be included in the study, basically. Now, they had to unfortunately amend the inclusion criteria about three quarters of the way study. They added some patients who didn't meet the original blood pressure criteria just to increase the number of patients enrolled. And unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, I thought we weren't going to talk about this, but we have to, unfortunately had them had to close the study early because of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, they unfortunately did not meet the power they were looking at. I'll explain where that may be a problem as we go along and talk about stuff. So, so patients then were either randomized to either initial treatment with this quad pill, which I'm going to talk about in just a second, or active treatment with just initial dose of standard monotherapy. And this was a pragmatic study. They did not tell practitioners what medication to use. So basically, they let them basically pick whatever monotherapy they wanted to pick in patients. They did have some suggestions, but they did not say you have to start with drug A and then go to drug B and then go to drug C. They let providers basically you know, make their own choices. And I think that's the only way this study probably would have ever gotten off the ground. They wouldn't have been able to probably get this study anyone enrolled if they had if they were being so strict about it. So what was in this quad pill? And again, once I once I tell you these medications, you're probably going to laugh to yourself a little bit. This is what they used. So the quad pill contained quarter standard doses of four common blood pressure medications, namely herbicidin at 37.5 milligrams, amlodipine at 1.25 milligrams, yes, Norvask at 1.25 milligrams, indapamide, which is a thiazide-like diuretic we don't use a ton in the United States, at 0.625 milligrams, and bisoprolol at 2.5 milligrams. And so they basically selected medications that were commonly prescribed in Australia. They all required single daily dose uh, dosing, which is nice, and were able to be cut into quarter pieces to make it easier to give to patients, basically. And again, any of those medications at their regular dose, so could be use in the in the control arm, basically. But they did tend to say they selected irbisartan more than other medications, but they basically said any were reasonable. Now, you could argue that one of the strikes in the study may be then that, you know, gee, if I search somebody on five of Norvas compared to, you know, 150 of amlodipine, am I going to get the same numbers? You know, most of the studies that I know suggest that on the whole, these, these drugs tend to get, as monotherapy, tend to get pretty similar decreases in blood pressure. But I also, my personal experience has been that Norvas tends to be, or, or amlodipine, tends to be a fairly potent antihypertensive, especially for systolic blood pressure, and especially in the elderly, it seems to work pretty decently. But again, that's something to kind of think about, but studies have not really suggested that. So basically, people who were on monotherapy, because they had been already diagnosed with blood pressure, had to stop their therapy and switch to either the polypill or the whatever mono, new monotherapy that they were going to be put on. It was perfectly inclusive of, again, a wide range of treatment options. They did not tell the individual prescribers how to start on monotherapy, how to increase 
increase drugs, how to increase doses. They didn't do that. They did this at uh, usually week six when the, uh, the first follow-up occurred because then the, the thought then the pharmacologic effects of the baseline therapy would have been fully washed out, which given the half-lives of almost all antihypertensives kind of makes sense. And then you would have the full effects of the study treatment that had been started basically. So that was when that was started in those patients. If that first follow-up blood pressure was greater than 140 over 90, then amlodipine will five milligrams uh, once per day was added to the participant's regimen and randomly assigned to treatments and amlodipine, if required, were provided to all participants at no cost. So that, that's one nice thing is, is, is the patients didn't have to pay for this. Of course, this is Australia where patients don't have to pay for their medications anyway. So that's kind of interesting. Open label treatment could be added without uh, the need to unblind, again, trying to make this as practical as possible. Then patients were then enrolled in 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. So each participant did undergo ambulatory blood pressure monitoring to make sure they were as accurate as possible in assessing the efficacy of these therapies. And again, I think it's a real plus, probably a little more difficult to do in the United States just because a lot of insurance companies don't pay, pay for ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. But I think that a very big plus of this study is that every single patient enrolled in that. So the primary outcome was the change in mean unintended office uh, systolic blood pressure at 12 weeks. So basically, they just wanted to take a look at the patients in the standard monotherapy versus the quad pill and see you know, what was the difference in blood pressure at 12 weeks. Secondary outcome was diastolic blood pressure at 12 weeks and 52 weeks, systolic blood pressure at 52 weeks, just the number of patients who are at blood pressure control. So in this, they actually used a higher than normal count, less than 140 over 90, and then tight blood pressure control as well. And they looked at that at different weeks throughout the study. They remember that they had a subgroup then that they went on and went on for a year after the first 12 weeks, so a total of 52 weeks. And those patients, they also looked at blood pressure lowering, blood pressure control, and, and more, most importantly, I think average drug reactions. And I think that's important because, you know, uh, 12 weeks may not be enough to, to assess the development of average drug reactions. They did a wide variety of laboratory analyses as well at multiple times, again, given the fact that we're dealing with drugs like angiotensin receptor blockers, making sure that it's not causing an increase in potassium or an increase in, in creatinine certainly makes sense as well. So. So talking about the uh, quartet study, looking at a quad pill at, at the combination of four quarter strength antihypertensive started uh, Im immediately in, in patients with hypertension compared to just monotherapy. And so we're going to take results as far as the patients themselves, they ended up with a total of 591 patients. The statistics for the study, as you might imagine, were pretty complicated. Anytime you have a, a big complex study like this, that just kind of stands to reason. But when I reading through them, they estimated that they needed a sample size of 650 to provide a 90% power to show a minimum of a four millimeter mercury difference in blood pressure between the two arms. And so they did not meet that because they only had 591 patients. So they, they fell short of that 650, not by much, but they did. They did do a primary outcome and continuous outcomes using the linear mixed model, which of course makes sense. You're going to have to account for a lot of confounders like age, diabetes, level of education, what their baseline blood pressure was, what their diastolic blood pressure was, stock blood pressure, what, what treatment were they on in baseline you're gonna to have to come up with a model that deals with all that for as far as compound as far as compounders were concerned. So in the end, they had again 300 patients who received the quad pill, 291 who received standard monotherapy, about 60% male in both arms, 83% uh, white in both arms. Vast majority were either not treated, about 50% in both arms had not had, had just gotten diagnosed with hypertension and were not treated, and the other half were only on monotherapy. So again, that was the entire group. So you're only on monotherapy or not treated at all. 
call the mean uh, systolic blood pressure at beginning in the intervention group was 142 compared to 140 in control. Um, and then 24 hour diastolics were 144 in the intervention group and uh, 143 in the control group. So again, above what you wanted. Everything else was very similar between it is it's worth noting that only about 8% of patients in both arms had diabetes. At the end of 12 weeks, again, looking at the quad pill arm and the intervention arm, 83.5% of patients were on the quad pill alone. At the end of 12 weeks, 11.4% were on a quad pill plus one drug, and then uh, only about 2% of patients were on more than that. Uh, at the end of 12 weeks in the control arm, only 58% of patients were on one drug, 32% of patients were on irbisartan plus another drug, 10% of patients were on, on, on two plus medications. So even at the end of 10 weeks, there have already been some pretty big switches in, in the number of patients who were controlled with monotherapy in the monotherapy arm. At the end of a year, those numbers were actually relatively similar to each other. So at the end of the year treatment, 80% of patients who had started on the quad pill remained on the quad pill. About 16% of patients compared to 11% of patients previously had gone to that plus one other medication. In the standard arm, only 57% of patients were on monotherapy, 33% were on at least two drugs, and another 12% were on multiple medications. So that's kind of what they found is how the, the study progressed, but what about outcomes are concerned? And so by 12 weeks, they found that the mean systolic blood pressure difference between the intervention group and the control group was 6.9 millimeters of mercury. So in other words, the people who are on the quad pill had essentially a 7.0 millimeter mercury difference in their systolic blood pressure compared to the monotherapy control arm at 12 weeks. And the actual overall blood pressure was the mean blood pressure at 12 weeks in the intervention arm was 120 over 71 and 127 over 79 in the monotherapy group. So numbers make perfect sense just based on what I said that again, they saw about, about a seven millimeter drop in the small quad pill group compared to the, to the monotherapy group. When they just took a look at patients, you know, what, how many percentage of patients were just likely to get control. They found that 76% of patients in the intervention group just on the, on the quad were going to actually achieve their goal blood pressure compared to only 58%. And that was statistically significant as you might imagine. And then when they looked at people who required tight blood pressure control, that was 46% of patients in the intervention arm got blood pressures of less than 120 over 80 compared to only 26% in the control arm. So that's all at 12 weeks. And then what about at 12 months? And the numbers, again, were very, very similar. At 12 months, the mean blood pressure was 121 over 71 in the intervention group and 128 over 76 in the control arm, again, with a difference of 7.7. So even at 12 months, there really wasn't a big uh, difference in blood pressure lowering, they, they saw this, this quad pill lower blood pressure by about seven, six to seven points more than just standard monotherapy and titrating up. Then, of course, we have to get to lab values. And of interest, lab, they did a pretty good job, I think, trying to look at average drug reactions. And they found that there wasn't a significant difference in a significant drug inter or average drug reactions. In fact, drug withdrawals due to uh, suspected ADRs was similar in both groups at 12 months. And the uh, list of average drug reactions they looked for was similar between the two groups with one difference. Dizziness was slightly more common in the quad pill group, so in the intervention group compared to the control group, only by a couple of percentage points, but it did just miss reading statistical significance. All other average drug reactions were similar between groups, and laboratory markers were similar as well. Again, you know, very interesting to see that there wasn't a big uptake or a, a spike of hyperkalemia or hyponatremia or creatinine difficulties in patients who was on the tiny quad pill. So, you know, what they basically found was that even though they were underpowered, and I think that's the under 
or the piece that was underpowered to do so is, is that serious adverse events are always going to be rare. And so, you know, some possible criticism of the study is, well, are we ready to hang our hat on the safety of using four quarter strength pills compared to just starting with monotherapy? You could argue that they were un- probably underpowered to show a big difference in serious adverse effects. So that is something you want to think about. But the bottom line was, this is probably the largest study done to date. It was a well-done, randomized controlled trial. It was pragmatic. And they basically found that using lower doses of multiple medications at 12 weeks and 12 months was better at getting people to blood pressure goal than just the standard. We'll start with monotherapy. Then we'll go, go to dual therapy that we all tend to do now. So for the listeners in the United States going, well, okay, that's terrific, but we don't have the quad pill here. And I'm certainly not going to prescribe, you know, quarter string pills of all this stuff for people. Until something like that becomes available, or if it ever becomes available in the US, I think what we really can draw from this is that, you know, current AHA guidelines basically say that you can start with monotherapy unless blood pressure is above a certain point. And if it's above a certain point, you can start with dual therapy. And I think what I really took away from this study is that using lower doses of dual or even more therapy earlier than I think most clinicians do is probably the way to go. I think, you know, that's where the clinical inertia really, really keep creeps in is that we start you on 25 hydrochlorothiazide, you know, and, and we bring you back in, in a month and your pressure's still high. So then we maybe add 2.5 of Norvask and then we bring you back in two or three months and it's still high. And then we go to five. You do reach a point where you either just go, well, they're under good enough control or, you know, the patient's complaining about burden or things along those lines. Is it better just upfront to say, you know, uh, we're going to use low doses of multiple medications. This is more likely to get you under control. We'll try and pick medications that are once daily. So the, so the pill burden is at least somewhat minimized in them and watch and see how you do. And I think if there's, if there's a lesson to be learned for American clinicians, I think that's the one is that the standard, well, let's just start you on one drug and see how you do for a few months and then add you to two drugs that this can help short circuit that clinical inertia and just say, look, we're just going to start you off on uh, earlier than I would have normally probably done on low doses of this. If we do this, we're less likely to get really bad side effects from any one medication, and we're much more likely to get you, get you under control. Now, of course, we do have to watch for things like price and pill burden and things along those lines. And if at all possible, picking medications that are, are, are once daily or 24-hour drugs is good, not only for adherence, but you know the whole notion of chronotherapy and the fact that we probably want to pick medications that do have a more lasting effect, because especially as drugs wear off overnight in patients, that, that's that uh, spike in blood pressure that everyone talks about that people tend to see at six, seven o'clock in the morning, something we really want to try and avoid as well. So the, I think that what I can take away from this is that patients who get diagnosed with hypertension, maybe it's better to, to, to adopt a strategy of just smaller doses of even just two medications right out of the gate, as opposed to a single medication. And one wonders if, if a combination therapy will be more common with the publication of the study and what will American organizations do with this information? What will the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology do with, with this? a well-done study like this and suggest that maybe, you know, a small doses of multiple medications may be beneficial. And then of course, the big question is, will that actually help with clinical inertia of treatment of hypertension in the United States? All questions we don't have answers for, but again, a fascinating study that will, I think, push me at least to consider recommending lower doses of multiple medications earlier than I probably would have. So that's it for this edition of Game Changers. Thanks for listening. Again, we really appreciate you doing that. We will see you next week, but until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important important day is today. Take care. Thank you for listening then. 
Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice. Oh, 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 o